0: Okay, y'all, open your Bibles to Song of Songs. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. When I was doing sermon prep on Friday at Common Grounds, I was enjoying a nice cup of coffee, and I had this incredible thought. It was actually kind of a freeing thought. I was like, holy cow, I thought, you know, for the next 12 to 14 weeks, I don't have to work too hard to hook you. Why, you ask? Because the Song of Songs has its own hook. (laughs) right? The song of songs, human romance carries its own hook. Uh, Romantic love is an ever-present ache or longing in you right now. And so on Friday, it just hit me. I don't have to prove this because you feel it. And it's, you feel it at such a level. You feel it. Some of you so self-consciously, you feel it. Some of you so like on the front part of your Your frontal lobes, you feel it, but others of us, we feel it in the subterranean levels of our heart. We don't even know that it's a primary motivator, a primary mover of our life, a primary mover of our relationships, a primary mood indicator for us, right? That's how incredible this is. But if I must prove it, I will. And so last week, I I started trying to hook men a little bit by saying and pointing out the obvious struggle that men have with pornography. And because I'm an equal opportunity offender, I thought maybe today I would start with a less known struggle that women might possibly have, okay? Just to be fair. I mean, I need to be fair, correct? So, uh, do you know what the number one selling genre is for all literary sales in the world? We're talking all literary pieces of work that have been written in the world. For all the world, what the number one literary sales is. Anyone know? Keep it to yourself, thank you. do you know what number two is? Number two is crime and mystery. Number three, you know what came in number three? I was actually kind of surprised by this. Inspiration and religion. So inspirational works and in religion. But the number one, which doubles, it's doubly ahead of number two. So you look at the charts, it's twice as much as number two. Is what? The romance novel. Of course you knew that, right? A $1.5 billion industry in the United States alone. 82% of the market are women. 18% are men. This one I didn't know. Though. The main readers are married women. 64% of, of ladies read more than one of these a month. Now, the romance storyline spectrum goes from, it goes from vampires to the paranormal to dystopian societies, which are oppressive suffering societies, on down to the classic traditional culture where a boy meets a girl, right? But apparently the desire for romance novels and the desire for romantic reality TV today is not for lust, like classic pornography. It's for romantic love. There's a guy named David Zoll. He came out with a new book called Seculosity. In chapter 3, he talks about the seculosity of romantic love. And he, he pinpoints the desired dynamic that goes on here. And possibly this is helpful for us. He says this, romantic love captures our devotion for good reason. It is the closest most of us will get to transcendence in this life. Holy cow. Oh, that's just Breathtaking. And as such, it is the single best approximation of salvation available to the human creature. The exalted language we employ to extol romantic love fits we call it enchanting, uplifting, sublime, heavenly, everything and more. Anyone who's experienced it firsthand knows that these terms fail to do justice to the real thing. Then this all goes on. He doesn't know this, but he goes on when I read it. I go, oh, he just, he just nailed the whole point of the Song of Songs. He just gave the point. In other words, why is the Song of Songs in the Bible? Why are we even doing this, some of you are asking? Here's what he says, and it is the point of the Song of Songs. He goes on to say, listen, my hope here in that chapter on romantic, seculosity of romantic love, My hope is not to denigrate romantic love. He's telling the reader, I'm not trying to denigrate romantic love when I say these lofty things about it and when I pinpoint the dynamic that's at work in every human being right now. I'm not trying to denigrate it, he says. I'm trying to preserve its magic. The more pressure we put on our relationships, he says, to provide transcendence, the less they will be able to deliver. There it is. Jeff, what's the Song of Songs about? You know what the Song of Songs is about? It's about preserving, presenting, showing us the magic of romantic love. At the same time, connect you to transcendent love. Pretty lofty goal for this book. In other words, you know what this book wants you to do? This book wants you to feel not only the enchanting magic of romantic human marital love, but wants you to feel God's love for you that way. It wants you to experience the desire of all desires. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, your anointing oils are fragrant, your name is oil poured over, therefore virgins love you. Draw me after you, let us run, the king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Betty, I'm so glad you were the one reading that passage. Lord, we thank you that you do love us to life again. We thank you that you speak us to life again. And so we ask now, by the power of your speech, by the power of your spirit, by the power of your word that we would and are. We know we're a valley of dry bones. We need you to say, let these bones live. So, oh, Lord, let us live, we ask in your name. Amen. All right, so romantic love is an ever-present ache. It's an ever-present longing in all of us. Right now, you have it. And some of you are thinking when you hear me say this, and some of you are still thinking about when you see that we're doing the Song of Songs, you're like, Are you crazy, Jeff? But more in this kind of a way, you're saying and you're thinking, I'm barely hanging on right now. I'm barely able to stay in my seat right now. This whole topic is so painful to me. Jeff, you don't know. You don't know what I've been through and you don't know what I continue to go through sexually and relationally. You don't know the abuse. You don't know the trauma. You don't know the confusion. You don't know the distrust. You don't know the total sexual and relational wreckage I am experiencing right now. And my response to you is, you're absolutely right. I do not. And I'm not going to pretend that I do. And I'm not going to pretend that all the answers are going to be solved for you. Uh, And I know that over the next 12 weeks, 12 to 14 weeks, I'm probably going to come across as incredibly stupid and insensitive to you at times, unintentionally. I want to emphasize that, unintentionally. But sometimes intentionally because I know I'm a sinner and I know I'm messed up, and so sometimes I don't have good motives. So I want to right now say, please forgive me for any insensitivity that I will have. And any stupid things that I'm gonna say, which I will do. Okay? But I do want you to know this, because this I know, for the Bible tells me so. God has something for you in the Song of Songs. So don't bail, be brave. Be brave. He has something for you. Okay. Um, To help us be brave, I thought we're going to identify, we're just going to identify the big idea right now. We're not going to mess around. I don't want you to have any unnecessary tension, confusion, frustration, like where's he going, where's this going. I don't want any of that. So I'm going to give you the big idea of the text right now, out front from the beginning so that you can relax and you can see where this thing is going. But I want to warn you that the big idea, the dominating idea, the, controlling point of this passage is not your normal Sunday school point. Here it is. Are you ready for it? This is what we're going to do in verses 1 through 4. The mystery of desire. First we're going to look at what it is. What is the mystery of desire? Then we're going to look at why it is. Why do we have this mystery of desire? Why is this book doing this to us or for us or in us? Or with us. Are you ready? If we had seatbelts, I'd say you need to fasten them now because we are about ready to jump into this text. If we had like armrests, I'd tell you to grab them because you're going to white knuckle it just for a little bit. Here we go. What is the mystery of desire? Are you ready? Verse 1 Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Well, there you have it. Bang, boom, the whole book begins with a kiss. A kiss, a book in the Bible, begins with a kiss. And not just a kiss, but the ache, the longing, the desire for a kiss. She's literally saying, kiss me again and again. Kiss me again and again. Kiss me again and again. Oh man, there's no warm-up like, well, hello, how are you? There's no introduction like, there once upon a time there was a Shulamite woman and this dashing shepherd boy. There's no, there's no explanation like, you know, she really likes him. There's no biblical principles, there's no propositions, there's no timeless truths, there's no, well, desire is a biochemical reaction in the brain and actually originate with the caveman when he first saw the cave woman. But excuse me, in this text, it's the cave woman who sees the cave man. There's no DTR. Let's define the relationship. Right? You know what we get? Right when the text opens, right when you read the book, you just get desire. Kiss me again and again. And it's all here in the Bible as God's good gift for you. Nothing dirty here. It's a good gift. Just in case there's, look at verse three, it it seems kind of weird. Therefore, virgins love you. This means the unmarried friends she has. Um, The others at the end of verse four This is the faith community. So what's happening, in case you missed it, in case you missed what God is saying, in case you missed the imagery that actually goes back to Eden because she's going to end up working in a garden, um, he wants you to know that when interpreters enter this passage, you're going to have this incredible desire just show up and happening. And what he's going to do, he's going to say, now I'm going to interpret it for you because if you try to interpret it, you're going to say it's dirty because I know you, he says. So I'm going to... I'm going to bring my interpreters in, divine interpreters, divinely ordained interpreters called the faith community, and they extol what's going on. They celebrate what's going on. They rejoice in what's going on because it's a good gift from God. So, just on a side, have you ever thought or wondered where kissing came from? Well, there's a Song of Songs scholar named Sharon James. Well, she's wondered that. She says, two faces pressed against each other, an exchange of spit and tongues touching. Quote, just to hear about it doesn't sound all that exciting. (laughs) It seems a bit awkward and messy, but to experience it is quite another story. Research scientist, Cheryl Kirschenbaum. I picked ladies for this particular task wrote a book called The Science of Kissing. It is a science book on the science of kissing. She says this, while we don't often think of them in this way, human lips are the body's most exposed erogenous zone. In other words, sexual stimulation, part of your body that can get sexually stimulated, it's the most exposed, just in case you wondered. It's packed with sensitive nerve endings. Even a light brush sends a cascade of information to our brains, helping us to decide whether we want to continue and what might happen next. Isn't this interesting? I think it's fascinating. She continues, Lip contact involves five of our 12 cranial nerves as we engage all our senses to learn more about the one we're kissing. A passionate kiss acts like a drug, causing us to crave the other person crave the other person thanks to a neurotransmitter called dopamine. This is the same substance involved in taking illegal substances like cocaine which is why the novelty of a new romance can feel so addictive end quote. Wow. I bet you didn't think all that was involved in a kiss. And the point's real simple. It's not just a simple kiss. Kissing is never a simple kiss. What's the mystery of desire first? Kiss me again and again. Quick application here. I might as well just state the obvious since it's here, but sometimes stating the obvious needs to be stated. Wives, kiss your husbands more. Okay, who said that? Mark. Husbands, kiss your wives more. And then everyone else, you know what, everyone else, we need to be careful because more is going on in kissing than you think. Okay, what's the mystery of desire? Let's look at the second thing it is. Verse one, for your love is better than wine. Now, last week I told you, I introduced to you, I said that there were, you know, what are others saying about the Song of Songs? I said that there's an unnamed pastor's wife who said, honey, you better be careful. Well, I'm hearing that like loud and clear right now. Like if there's this warning thing that says, Jeff, you better be careful, you better be, I'm hearing my wife's voice right now, right now for this passage. But I want you to know, I'm not the one that really needs the warning, the Bible does. English translations are so embarrassed about this passage, they're embarrassed more than God is. In fact, Dugod, a Song of Songs scholar, says that English translators did this to this particular phrase. They coyly put love in there. So what is the literal translation? Are you Ready? Can you handle the truth? For your sexual caresses, your sexual touching is more intoxicating than wine. In other words, she's saying, touch me. Again and again. And you ladies that like wine, I just want you to take note. This is better than wine. And it's all here in the Bible as God's good gift. What's the mystery of desire? Touch me. So a quick application here. The Song of Songs does not present sexual love as simply an act of procreation. The traditionalist view. And it doesn't present sexual love as hiding under the sheets the Puritan view, and it doesn't present sexual love as marital duty. The honeymoon is over view, and it doesn't present sexual love as let's get it over with so I can get back to Netflix view, like sex doesn't matter view, and it's not sex is more electrifying outside of marriage, the modern view, what's going on here? And the song of songs presents sexual love as unabashed sex. Passionate sex. Electrifying sex. Kiss me, touch me, she says. What's the mystery of desire? Third thing, verse three and four. Your anointing oils are fragrant, Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. We all know scents are powerful, right? Just ask a five-year-old when you try to put something healthy before him. Oh, you know. I'm like, how does anybody not like ketchup? I mean, explain that one to me. How does anybody not? I mean, it's amazing. But scents are powerful, right? Thus the perfume and the cologne industry. Once a year I get cologne and then my wife stopped getting me cologne because, you know, cologne's so expensive, you know? And I don't know, I'm the weirdest thing. It's like if it's expensive, that means I don't use it. So she went in and looked to see if she needed to get me cologne because every Christmas she gets me more cologne. And she goes, you still have a whole deal of cologne here. I went, yeah, because it's expensive. She goes, but if you're not going to use it, I'm not going to buy you anymore. I don't know why I said that. Other than (laughs) cologne and perfume is a big industry. All right, I still, I want you all to know that this is what I really (laughs) wanted to tell you. I still remember the smell of my wife's hair on our wedding. I still remember that smell. And you know what happens as the years have rolled by and all, and, you know, shampoos came in and came out in our house every once in a while, unknown, because that, we would rotate, she would rotate back to that shampoo, and I'd go, oh, that smell. Now, it really bugs me that I don't know what that is. It's almost like I want to say to her, let's just go down to you know, Walmart and look at that aisle and just take them all, and you do one a week, and we'll get it, we'll find it. What was it? What were you using? When married couples lose their spouse, they say, many report that they'll go into their closet that they share and they will grab an article of clothing from their lost spouse, a shirt, a dress, and they will sit there for hours smelling it. Why? Because scent conveys presence. scent, someone's scent transfers their presence to you. This is what's going on here. She wants a scent because she wants him. Your anointing oils. That's his scent. It's connected to your name. So what's happening here is his name is his person. His name is who he is. His name is him. And when you mix scent and name together, She's simply saying, I want him. Him I want. And it's all there in the Bible as God's good gift. Quick application here. The woman here does not want sex as an end of itself. Do you notice that? So she's not into the modern view of sex. She's not into the hookup view of sex. She's not into the pornographic view of sex. She doesn't want male attention. So she's not wanting male attention so she can feel better about herself. She's not wanting male attention so she can justify her existence. She doesn't want an eighth grade relationship. She doesn't want a relationship that's based on the thrill of being liked and the validation that she's finally lovable from some boy. (coughs) She's not in love with being in love. She wants a specific man. She's directing all her desire on him. I want him. What's the mystery of desire? It's a good gift from God. Kiss me. Touch me. I want her. I want him. So why the mystery of desire? Well, the text answers it immediately in verse 4. It just tells you right away, the king has brought me into his chambers. This is bridal imagery throughout the Bible. This is marital vocabulary throughout the Bible. Why the mystery of desire? The answer from the text is immediate. The answer from the text goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. The answer from the text goes through the whole Bible. The answer is, why desire? Because it's God's good gift for marriage. Why sexual love? Why romantic love? Because it's God's good gift for marriage. Why? Because it's God's good gift of taking a soul and a body and binding them together. Union, oneness, the closest a human relationship can be, where a man and a woman are best friends and lovers at the same time, not just best friends and not just lovers. Best friends, lovers, boom, God brings them together and God does it. It's his good gift. Now, all the wonders of this kind of relationship are going to unfold as the book goes on. But right now, all we need to know right now, because we'll, we'll pick them up as they come. We're not going to say everything all at once. That would be dumb. Sexual love, this is what I want you to know, sexual love is a good gift from God for marriage. So there are two quick applications here. So if that's true, if sexual love, romantic love, is God's good gift for a man and woman in marriage, well, what about same-sex desires? Okay, um, over the next 12 weeks, we're going we're gonna to unfold more and more of this, those kind of struggles and those kinds of realities, and I can tell you on Wednesday night, we'll go as deep as you want to go with them. So I have a dilemma. I can only say a little bit now, and I'm only going to say a little bit now, but something needs to be said now. Sexual desire is God's good gift for a man and woman in marriage, but because of the fall, not because of creation, not because of redemption, and not because of the ultimate consummation, but because of the fall, all our desires can get disordered. And if what I'm about to say to you doesn't make sense, it needs to start making more sense. Sin is ultimately not something we choose and do. Sin is ultimately something we're in. It's a dark power, and we all come in it called original sin. And as a dear friend of mine said, who's sitting out here today, we don't get to pick and choose the horrors and the terrors that come to us and our children through original sin. We discover them in us. And so what that means is when you're coming to this world under sin and death and the evil one, all the dark powers, when we come into this world this way, it means that it has so jacked us up that at the very core of our being, at the very core of our own desires, they have been disordered. Without a conscious choice sometimes. Most of the time, perhaps all of the time. You know, the whole is it genetic or is it nature or nurture? The Bible says, uh huh. Of course. You come in with it and then you activate it and cultivate it. It's both. Our disorder, and this is why I want you to understand if you struggle with same sex desires, I want you to understand this. Your disordered desire is not your identity. It feels like it, doesn't it? But it's not. It's a disordered desire. It's the same kind of disordered desire as someone who is heterosexual who serially commits sexual sin. Sexual sin outside marriage is a disordered, disordered desire. And here's something you need to hear, too. God doesn't rank your disordered desires, so we shouldn't. And a lot of going on today, even our own denomination, is everyone's trying to rank disordered desires. And everyone's trying to figure out what everybody's saying, which I I, I said in the first service I thought was going on. We don't really know what everybody means, so everybody's trying to figure out. But then I realized we really don't care what everybody means. We are telling people what they mean and then accusing them. Same-sex attraction is a disordered desire. Heterosexual sin is a disordered desire. It just so happens that in our culture today, this one gets ranked. Whereas the dude that lives in Hollywood and sleeps with what, 50 million women is seen as a hero. No, he needs a butt-kicking. What about sexual desires before marriage? Here's the answer from the text really, really quick because we're doing quick applications like on the run. Well, yeah, they exist because they're gifts from God. God directs the actualization of your sexual desires to marriage. That's where he directs them. Everything in verses 1 through 3 is moving to 4. It's moving to marriage. All that we just saw, the mystery of desire, is moving to its actualization in marriage. So, singles and teenagers, here's what you need to do. You need to have this kind of talk with the Lord. Oh my, sexual desires are a good gift from you. And when you feel them and experience them, you say things like that to God because this is the way a relationship works. You say, this is what sexual desires feel like. They're not dirty, teenager, single. They're a good gift from God. Now you have a heroic conversation with the Lord and you say things like, oh God, help me direct these to marriage. Help keep me from directing it outside of marriage. That's heroic. That's heroic. And then get married, Lord willing. And I know, I know, I know there are many of you out there, I, I know the teenagers are, without a doubt. Everyone wants to know how far is too far before marriage, right? I mean, when I was in campus ministry, if I got a penny, just give me a penny for everyone to ask me that. Man, I'd be living, I don't know, Nice. Very nice. All right, let's, here's, here's my response. And I'm going to say my response right now. When you hear my response, you're going to say, That's, you're such a loser. That's a horrible response. And I'm going to say you're right, but I'm going to say it anyway. Here's my response. Let's say you're married, okay? Everyone here, let's say you're married. How far is too far with someone who's not your spouse? You're a loser, Jeff. You're right. I am. Don't you get the whole dating thing? I mean, it's a little more complicated than that. You're right. It is. But I still am going to say it because I want us to think about it. I'm not giving you a list, and I'm not giving you good advice on what to do. But you must think about this because even the experts are saying kissing is a big deal. Do you know what I forgot to tell you? (laughs) I just realized that Because I had a conversation about it with the first service. You know what the experts are saying about kissing? And it's the woman that wrote the uh, Song of Songs commentary. There's one other thing about kissing, and it's very, very important. When a man and a woman kiss, science, research is saying now that the man's testosterone is transferred to the woman through his saliva. Kissing is a big deal. (laughs) A really big deal. All right, second quick application here. Rethink your view of gender. What? Yeah. Notice that the Song of Songs starts with the woman taking the initiative, not the man. This is not a traditionalist view of women. This is not a traditionalist view of man. You need to throw out your traditional view of women and your traditional view of man if it doesn't account for the woman taking the initiative here. This is also not, and uh, here's the deal. This means we don't do stupid stuff like, you know, a daughter has to ask her dad for permission to have coffee alone with a boy in a coffee shop with 50 other people. That's just stupid. That's a traditionalist view. And if I'm hurting your feelings, I'm sorry, dads, if I am hurting your feelings. I'm a dad, I have two daughters. But I can tell you that I have over the years of being here in a college town and over the years when I was up in the New England area in a college town and over the years when I was overseas in college towns, I deal with the damage and have dealt with the damage of girls that have that kind of upbringing. Stop it. Stop that. There's no feminist view of women here, too. I told you I'm an equal opportunity offender. I'm going to offend everybody. There's no feminist view of women here. In other words, the male gender is inherently evil, right? Somehow the chromosome that makes you male, oh, that's just evil. But then the irony of all ironies, though, the whole agenda is for you still to become a man, act like a man, work like a man, whatever. It's just weird to me. Sorry. Sorry. There's no Hollywood view of women here. There's no hookup view of women here. In other words, drag your man into the bedroom. And then tomorrow, drag another man. And the next day, drag another and another and another. What we have here is what Philip Ryken calls President of Wheaton, another Song of Songs scholar, he says, She boldly declares her affection for someone she loves and openly communicates her desires, including her sexual desires. Yet at the same time, she expects and longs for the man to provide leadership in the relationship. Notice she wants him to kiss her, also that she calls him her king. Now, you've got to get over this really, really quick. Um, you have to figure out who wrote the Song of Solomon. Let's just say, if if Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon, it's creepy. Because he had over 300 wives and concubines. Really? Which one was this one, Solomon? Woo! What most people think is that this is a poem, a love song, dedicated to Solomon, or written by Solomon himself, that has no interplay with his biographical history it's reality like Ecclesiastes it's reality like the Proverbs I think that's the right so when we get here and you get to king you're not to think Solomon that would be dumb and you don't think a literal king what you do it's a metaphor it's an image that she has attributed to her man he's On a smaller scale, kind of similar, there was a time when our kids were growing up that Nancy and I would get together and we pretended that I was Superman to the kids. It's kind of like that. And we would tell stories and then, you know, I would be out late when I was working. I'd be out late and I'd come back and then the next day they would all say, Nancy would gather, your dad was out tonight, last night. And Oh, she would tell a story, I would tell a story. It's kind of like that, sort of. The woman is independent, he says, enough to have desires for her own and then pursue them. She knows what she wants in a man. She also happens to know which man she wants, End quote. Some of you are thinking, typical man. <laughs> Jeff, you're a typical man and you just read a commentary on a man. You, it's easy for you and other men to pontificate on gender issues and gender practices because you're a man and my answer to you is you're right. That's why I'm not saying it. she is. She's saying this stuff as God's word. There's one more application. I said there were two. I lied. There's three. It's for the seasoned marriage, but I'm not going to say it. I'm going to let a woman say it. Sharon Jane, Song of Songs scholar, she says it this way. Perhaps like the Shulamite, you've already flirted, teased, and snagged your husband. So what did these first two chapters have to do for you, seasoned marriage person? Wow. See, I could never say that, but she can. One of the keys to lifelong intimacy, she says, is never letting the romance end. When we stop flirting, the passion starts floundering. Marriage can subconsciously slide into the monotonous ho-hum of the mundane, leave us, leaving us wondering what happened to the love? What happened to the electricity we felt in the early years? There's a lot of verbal foreplay and blatant flirting going on in the first two chapters of the song. And she goes on to say, and what you're going to see is it never stops. The intentional teasing and enticing tempting doesn't stop. The unmarried man and the Shulamite flirt with each other just as much in the beginning of the romance as they do at the end. End quote. So you can apply that as you see fit. Why the desire? Why the mystery of desire? Number one, here's the answer. Because it's God's good gift for marriage, right? (laughs) Because it's the magic of marital love. Okay, Uh, this is why I picked, uh, you might remember right before, guys, when y'all weren't here, we needed a sermon before we got into this, before school came back, all that kind of thing. So we did Martha and Mary. And the reason why I picked Martha and Mary is for this reason, because Jesus says this, you know how he says, Y'all, you all you want to know what the secret of life is? Do you want to know what the meaning of life is? Do you want to know why you do what you do? Do you want to know who you really are? Do you want to know how life works and how life doesn't work and why it doesn't work for you? Jesus says, life is this. Life is all about being perfect. Perfect. If you're perfect, you live. If you're perfect, you flourish. If you're perfect, your relationships are electric. If you're perfect, well, shalom. And that includes being sexually perfect. And the Song of Songs is presenting to us the magic of sexual perfection. The magic of of romantic perfection in marriage. And that's why we're all devastated, right? Sexual imperfection is why we experience so much sexual pain. Sexual imperfection is why we experience so much relational pain. So Ian Duguid, Song of Psalms scholar, he asked the most crucial question of this passage right at the beginning of the book. It's a brilliant question, so I'm going to ask it for us. He says this What use is this ideal picture of sexual wholeness when we're all so sexually broken? What good is this? The answer is <laughs> to lead you to the perfect spouse. to lead you to transcendent love, to lead you to the desire of all desires. That when this one loves you, you come alive. And when you see this one who loves you perfectly, wants you perfectly, desires you perfectly, you want Him and have to have Him the secret of the song of songs God designed the magic of marital love when God was designing marriage when God was putting together this unbelievable relationship when God was thinking about it when God designed it when God made it in Genesis He designed it based on his son's love for you. That's why we want to know what marriage is about, because it's going to inform you (laughs) of the magic of transcendent love. And as you get transcendent love, it's going to radically help you in the sexual area and in your marriage. What does Jesus' transcendent love look like? What does it feel like? Well, this is what it looks like. If we're just going to go theologically right now, I'm just going to be very doctrinally clear so that you get this. Jesus was sexually pure for you. His sexual purity is now your sexual purity amidst all your impurity. And then not only that, Jesus took all your sexual impurity and he took it to himself And he became sexually impure for you, taking it all away from you to the cross and killed it. And so when he shows his hands and he has the scars, he's saying to you, It's not yours anymore. Why do you live like it is? All the guilt, all the shame, that's all mine now. Your shame is my shame now. It's not yours anymore. I took it. Your guilt's my guilt. It's not yours anymore. Your sexual impurity, it's mine now. And this includes those of you who have been and currently might be sexually abused. He takes the abuse, your abuse, he takes it to the cross and kills it. It's not yours anymore. Do you know what this means? This means you are free. Every one of us are free. If you're married, you are free to learn to love your spouse, you're free to learn. The magic, you're free to learn. The magic of romantic love. If you're single, you're free to have sexual desires. You're free to have them. And you're free to heroically process them with the Lord and direct them to marriage. And heroically resist and fight against directing them outside of marriage. And then if you're sexually abused and have been sexually abused, you're free to learn how to heal. Because transcendent love is that powerful, that healing, that enabling, that restructuring, that changing. Transcendent love is the desire of all desire.